Good morning. Great to be with you. Two weeks ago when I was up here with Jay and we kicked off the Here to Stay campaign, I was able to introduce to you some questions that drove some of the decision-making processes over 20 years ago for us here. And one of those questions was, if we burned down, would anybody care? And just a reminder, if you, if you have slept since then, it, we, we be, ask ourselves in, in terms of, would, if we were to go away, would anybody really care? And the answer was no. No, no one really would care. Our city doesn't know us. Our, our neighbors don't really like us. Um, our school districts don't know us. And so we began a process, but I couldn't really tell you about the process, but it, it's, lots of people kind of came up afterwards like, what did that look like? Well, it began to look like just a dialogue with our schools saying, can we help? We actually went to our schools and said, anything that we can do, anything at all. And their response was no. They didn't trust us. They didn't know us. And then after, after a repeating asking of, can we help? Can we help? They finally said, okay, we'll let you sponsor a kid to science camp. That's how it all began with our school districts. And then the next year, so instead of sponsoring one, we, I think we sponsored five. And then... The next year, we went back and said, can we help? Can we help? Can we help? And they said, yes, you can sponsor five kids to science camp. That would be a great thing. And instead, we said, well, we, we could help with the landscaping or with the painting around here. Is there anything else that we could do? No, but you can do that. And so we sponsored 10, I think. And then halfway through that second year, it took that long for them to say, you know, you could paint the bathroom doors or whatever it was. Actually, I remember what it was. Uh, Dana reminded me, you can help clean our sidewalks. And we said, absolutely. And, and those, there were some of you in the room that were there. We scraped gum off the sidewalks for a solid day. Tens of pounds. I don't know how many pounds of gum were in trash bags scraped off those. That's, it began to look like this engagement where we were scraping gum, and then that led to the things that we show you now, hospitals built. That led to universities started. That led to orphanages being purchased and, and, and being run in Jesus' name. But it didn't start that way. It started in just the proximity of the people around us. It, it, it led to giving a free turkey to the guys who were washing cars next to us. It, it, it started in that way. And there was a quote from last week's message from Jay. And don't worry, those of you who are like, who is this bald dude? I'm used to tall hair and I can't really get my head around it. Just, just hang in there with me. And, but Jay will be back next week. But he said this last week from uh, Elton Truebloody. He quoted this. A man or woman who has made at least a start on discovering the meaning of human life is when he or she plants a shade tree under which they know full well they will never sit. And that, my friends, is the life Jesus is calling us to. That is the community that God is asking us to. In fact, 14 times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about our relationship with our neighbors, the cost of what it looks like to follow him. If you go to Luke chapters 9 and 10, he talks about this discipleship that he's calling us to, and he talks about how much it's going to cost us and what it'll look like kind of in the first parts of chapter 9 and 10. And then when you get to 10, you come to a really, a really... Um, well-known story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And he says, here's, here's what I'm calling you to. To follow after me has something to do with your eternal destiny. Of course it does. But it, you miss it. You miss it so badly if you think it's just something that's going to help you later. It is something that you must live out now. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to jump in. If you want to open your flat screen devices to Luke chapter 10, that'll be fine. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and slow to anger, rich in love, good to all. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together around Jesus' teachings without a threat of persecution or disruption. We thank you for the provision of these buildings and the sacrifice that has come before that we might sit here. And we thank you that you have left in our hands, in our responsibility, this message of good news that has so radically changed those of us who embraced it. So you ask that you would guide this time, please. Use it for our good, for your glory. Also pray for the students who are gonna be climbing in buses and cars and heading back from their camp. Maybe they're already on the road now. God, would you watch over them and protect them? Bring those young kids home safe to us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This happens actually 11 times in the Gospels where religious leaders will, will, will try to expose Jesus and test him for what um, he's teaching. And they say, this religious leader says, or an expert in the law says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is clear from the Gospels. When Jesus, It's not hard to know what Jesus thought was most important. It comes up several times in the Gospels. Then Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And that word for correctly actually is where we get our word orthodoxy. You have answered inside the confines of what is orthodox. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. And that term there is actually in a tense of the verb where it's it's a present perfect tense that says he's doing it, he always does it, and he's gonna always keep on doing it. This dude's got an attitude problem. And he's trying to work the system to make sure that he's on the good side of it. Wanting to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? Now the Greek word for neighbor uh, would have been one that was close, actually, to the English, the old English word, neighbor, 
Nibur means nigh is near, bur is dwelling. So a Greek and mostly our understanding of the word neighbor is someone who dwells close to us, a near dwelling. The people that are right around our houses. In a Hebrew sense, they would have thought more about tribe. They would have thought more about not necessarily people who live right next door to me, but people who belong to the same group I'm in. Either one, it's a closed system. You got to live close to me or you got to think and behave like me. And in reply to this, who is my neighbor? Jesus understanding what this dude is thinking. He said, a man was going down from Jericho. I mean, from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's important right there. And I'll tell you why in a minute. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, why am I putting my emphasis on this? The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a 17-mile uphill climb. So they're coming down. They're going from Jerusalem. That's how we know this. Jerusalem down to Jericho. So they, they have been. This guy that gets robbed has been into the holy city. The priest has been into the holy city. Probably... They, since they are now leaving, they went there with some kind of a religious obligation in mind. They were there giving, bless you, they were there serving somehow the, the aspects of, of their faith and what they needed to do in Jerusalem. And now they're leaving down. Now, if you want to know about this road, it's a, it's a very treacherous road. I've been, Dane and I have been on this road. And if you want to think about it, think about Highway 9 times 2. Okay, that'll about get you there. 17 miles, pretty steep climb, froth with dangers, mostly robbers who are looking for people silly enough to travel by themselves. And when they find those vulnerable people, lots of times they get robbed. This priest who is mentioned here is someone who serves at the altar. So think lead pastor. Okay, think J. Kim. <laughs> this is the dude who's at the center of all that happens when God's people gather. And this guy is coming down this road, which means he just came from where? Church. Okay, this is you at the Niner game this afternoon if it were here. This is, this is you this afternoon when you go and have lunch somewhere. You just came down this road. You just met and communed and led people into the presence of the holy God, teaching his scriptures and letting people know just how much he loved them. And as he is going down that same road, he saw the man. And he passed by on the other side. You feeling me here? 
So to a Levite, think Mark Averill. Think someone who serves the uh, goings-on of the worship service and that has done so since a very young age with great skill and capabilities. And he too is going down the road, came to the place and saw the man that's beat up, And he passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, think somebody raised in Detroit. (laughs) That has been a Lions fan since they can remember. He travels and he comes down where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. We don't really like that word pity, but it's compassion. To have compassion, to feel inside of your gut deeply and to empathize with what's going on. Same word that Luke, in just a little bit, in five chapters later, in Luke 15, we'll use when the father is waiting for the prodigal son and sees him a long way off, he had pity or compassion on his son and runs to him. This Samaritan went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage, but two denarii probably represents in this inn, it's probably a pretty humble inn. Um, It represents probably two weeks' worth of lodging for him. And now he's given oil, wine, the use of his donkey, and now silver money. And he gave it to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus looks towards the man who is seeking to justify himself on a regular basis every day of his life, trying to figure out how can I do religion in such a way that it serves me. Jesus says to him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy. And then Jesus says, go and do. Go and do that. Jesus does not answer who the neighbor is. He speaks not of the obligation, but of what kind of person we must be in order to be the kind of person God intends for us 
to live out. Now, what drives us here? See, this is not just, it would be easy for you if you're just a a casual attender here and seeking to justify yourself, which by the way, I don't know who you are. So don't say. But it's not just this story, this one-off about a guy that's walking down a road. When you begin to understand the biblical narrative of what God feels about mankind and has done on their behalf, you begin to realize that this is absolutely core to everything we are and do. You need, and this is a, a, you need a solid understanding of, of mankind, of humankind from God's point of view. And then a biblical understanding of what God has done on behalf of humankind. You might say it if, you, if you're Jay. <laughs> You might say you need a solid biblical anthropology. Anthropology is just um, anthropos, man, and logos, study, study of mankind. So what does the, the Bible really teach us about this? What does it teach us about the people that you live with day in and day out? How does the Bible form how we should look and respond to the people around us? First, there is a unity of race according to the scriptures that is equal before God. We are created in the image of God. Man's kind relationship to, to God can be personal and not mechanical. God has extended to mankind his promises and his covenant created for community and strangely, weirdly related to each other according to the scriptures. Acts 17 says, from one person he made all the nations. That there is a unity across the races because of how God has made us. There's also a quality across the races of mankind, that we are created by God and given bestowed worth to him. You will never cross or look into a pair of eyes on this planet anywhere that God does not deeply love and care for. They are dear to him. N.T. Wright said, humans were designed, created, and called to reflect the praises of creation back to God and to reflect God's wise rule in the world. So you have this incredible unity and this incredible worth with everybody on the planet, but you also have something that's messed it up. In the scriptures, we call it the fall. Sin is introduced into the experience that we have. And beginning from the very first man and woman, sin entered into the whole dynamic and screwed it up. And that the penalty that all have sinned, the penalty for that sin is a death, a separation from God unless God intervenes on our behalf. And that, of course, is what he did in Jesus Christ. And salvation is offered to all, every single person, through faith in Christ. 
His work on the cross was on our behalf and removes all condemnation if we will embrace his work. Romans 5 says, For as by the trespass of the one man that death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And in that faith, we are all equal. When I mention Jay or I stand before you or Mark or Dana or anyone else, we are all equal. At the foot of the cross, the ground is flat out. And just because I'm paid to be good doesn't mean I'm better than you who are essentially good for nothing. (laughs) For free. In this understanding of humans on this planet, we also recognize that there's another big deal and that is that there is a reconciliation offered to all who will receive. That based on the gospel, we are by faith reconciled, restored, brought back together, not just forgiven, but brought into new relationship with God. And given the ministry, 2 Corinthians 5 says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us now this ministry of reconciliation. We see that the gospel is about a forgiveness that we cannot earn. Hannah Arendt said, forgiveness is the only way to reverse the irreversible flow of history. In Luke 23, where Jesus is on the cross, he models this perfect for us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. First, a theological understanding of where we stand before God. And, and this, is, this is crazy to me. You've heard me say this before if you've come here very often. And the plan around that great work of Christ, sin enters into, we need a savior, savior comes, lives a perfect life, dies an unbelievably cruel death on our behalf, and then salvation is offered to all who will embrace that by faith. That, uh, that's an unbelievable plan of grace. Amazing plan. But then God says, now I'm going to take that plan and the message of that plan and I'm going to put it in your hands. Now you live this grace. You live this grace. That's how people are going to recognize that it's true. You live it. And then when they ask you about where did you get such grace, you say, well, I'm a follower of Christ. Why do you scrape gum off our sidewalks? Well, I'm a follower of Christ. Why in the world would you consider at this time extending our, our, our outreach into the front part of this property and here to stay campaign? We're followers of Christ and there's gonna be gobs of people all around here. I know if you live here, you're not really happy about that. If you live right around like in the next, in a mile's radius of this church, you're like, oh my gosh, it's gonna be so crowded. But as a follower of Christ, you ought to be saying, thank you, Jesus, for bringing people to us. And God has decided he's going to leave that in your hands. It's not a good plan. Okay? I know some of you. I know me. I know Mark and Dana. I I know us. 
But that's the plan. So you have this theological understanding of how God feels about human, the human race and what he's done on their behalf. But then you finally have this historical perspective of who we are and what the church has been for two millennia. Jesus' response was, go and do likewise. The original question of who, who is my neighbor turns the questioner around and says, to whom must I be a neighbor? And Jesus blows that up and says, everybody, everybody. The neighbor is not necessarily the one who is near. The neighbor is the one who you decide to get near to, to see them and walk across the road. And this has been our heritage since the beginning of the church. Let me show you. There's some theological discussions and some disagreements across Christendom by, you get, by the time you get to the 300s. And they form uh, this giant council that meets for several months in Nicaea. And this council of Nicaea gathers and it's the first major gathering of Christian leaders from around, the, from around the known Christian world at that time. And at the time, they settle some of the theological issues. They do that, and they come away with what we call the Nicene Creed. Many of you grew up reciting that creed. But they were also instructed, every bishop was instructed to establish a designated space to nurse and heal the sick as well as provide food and shelter for the poor. They met together and they said, when you go back to your church, every church must have a space designated for those who are not part of you to bring medical care, to bring food and shelter. Every church. This gave birth to what we call hospitals. About 30 or 40 years after this, there's a, a guy that's uh, the Basile of Caesarea. And this guy took his area of church and he builds the first proper hospital in Cappadocia. Physicians and nurses, many of whom were monks from the monastery that was right there, they open up this hospital in 369, about 369 AD, and it is the first proper hospital, and it's built by the church. They also provided occupational skill training to those who needed work. They began to reach in and go near, go to them. And then this gal, Fabiola, she was a wealthy widow who was also trained as a nurse. She spent all of her wealth to build the first hospital in Rome. And then she built a second one 50 miles away. And this continues on. By the time you get to the 13th century, most hospitals in Europe, almost all hospitals in Europe, are under the direction of Christian bishops and using personal resources from the church to keep those hospitals open. 
by the 14th century, there's one hospital for every 6,000 people in Europe. This is how serious the church took it. One hospital for every 6,000 people. What do you figure we got here in San Jose? Well, across the country, we have one hospital for every 60,000 people. Hospitals became being named Domus Sancti Spiritus, which means the house of the Holy Spirit. And they did all this with no ROI in mind. We're simply trying to be faithful to what Christians are asked of his children, just to continue to be the church and that's been modeled for centuries. Now, we, we can't open a hospital here in this country, actually. It would take unbelievable amounts of money, and the red tape from the governmental restrictions would really, would really mess us up. But we can open hospitals almost anywhere else in the world. Once... All we could do here was gather the quilting guild that met on our campus and say to them, what do you do with those quilts after you make them? And that group of women said, we give them away to homes that have unwed mothers in them and hospitals that need um, some some quilts. For, and we, I said, what if we sold the quilts? What if we sold them and took all that money and gave, them, gave it to orphans in Zimbabwe? That's all we could think of. We, could, we didn't have any other resources, really. And you know what that, that dear woman said? She said, oh, no, we could never do that. I said, why is that? She said, if we, if we put those quilts out for bids, what if a quilt doesn't get a bid? It would hurt the woman's, a woman's feelings really terribly. And I said, here's what I can do. What if I guarantee you every quilt gets a bid? And then I went home to Dana and said, I may have made a mistake. <laughs> we may have just bought a bunch of quilts. You know, there was never a quilt that didn't get a bid. I think for the next four or five years when we sold quilts to raise money for these dear orphans, mostly from the AIDS pandemic in Zimbabwe, we're just trying to stay faithful. Your generation is not gonna sell quilts. You're gonna be asked to participate in a Here to Stay campaign to extend the ministry out. In all the stories, John Ortberg says, in all the stories of Jesus' compassion, we are never told that he had compassion on someone because they deserved it. It was only because they were in need. Let me introduce you to one of my heroes. His name is George Mueller. And he was a pastor in the 1800s in London, in Bristol, actually more specifically. And he noticed while he was pastoring this church, as he 
walked his way back and forth to work that there were gobs of children on the streets. Just tons of them. All over the place. And no one seemed to care. And so he began to invite these small children that were orphans, he found out, to invite them to stay in his home. And when he got up to 30 of them in his house, with his wife's encouragement, they decided to try to build a house where they could house orphans. And over the next several years, this little tiny church, it was never really much, it was never as big as us. Never, ever. They began to call in the orphans from the streets and continue to build houses to put more and more orphans in and to offer Christian education to those orphans. Do you know that by the end of George Mueller's life, that little old church in Bristol, England, had cared for 120,000 orphans. Shut up. Jesus is calling us to what we want most, but it's down a road that costs you. We want meaning, we want purpose, we want impact, we wanna be remembered, we wanna be known, we want our faith to matter, we want people to see the reality of it. We need to take a look and then go near Go towards it. One more thing about George Mueller. When he was 71, he decided he would quit pastoring that church and begin to travel as an evangelist. He traveled from the age of 71. Over the next 17 years, he traveled over 200,000 miles going around and preaching the gospel. Now, remember, that's in, on a horse, in a carriage, on a slow boat. This is all middle 1800s. What might happen? What might happen if we just said, Lord, here's my challenge. Lord, I agree to the terms. You do this all the time. You get on a website and it asks you, do you agree to our terms before you can move on? All the time. You do it so much that you probably have an app that automatically checks the box. Yeah, I agree. Did you read them? No, but I agree. What if this? What if Jesus' call for you to be a neighbor, you agree to the terms? Whatever that is. Now, it may be scraping gum. Or it might be more. I'm gonna invite Dana to come up and she's got some instruction about how this is gonna work from here on out, I think. And, but before she comes, can I pray for us? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the awesome gift 
of relationship with you, of restoration, reconciliation with you. And we ask, please, that you would find us faithful, that you would find us willing to agree to the terms, whatever that might be. And may you get great glory and credit from it. In Jesus' name, amen.